Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in-depth conversations with experts, innovators, and those doing the boots on the ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. I am excited to be with three members of the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council. Dr. Jan Fritz, the chair, Sylvia Ordonio, Ordunio, sorry, Sylvia, and one of the vice chairs, Mike Tilchin. NEJAC is a federal advisory committee to the Environmental Protection Agency. It was established in September of 1993, and it provides advice and recommendations on a broad and comprehensive range of issues from all of the stakeholders who need to be involved in the environmental justice discussion. discussion. Jan, Sylvia, and Mike, thank you so much for joining me for tea today. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And one of the things I like about this group is that you, the three of you, uh, represent uh, a number of the different stakeholders when we were talking about that well-rounded conversation. So I am excited that we have academia represented and we have the community-based organizations represented and we have some industry represented as well. So I think this is going to be a wonderfully well-rounded conversation. And I'm going to start with a question that I wonder if it differs a little bit for each of you, given your constituencies. And that question is, when we talk about environmental justice, what do we mean by that? And Sylvia, I'm going to start with you. Sure, thank you. So uh, typically and sadly, traditionally, it's about um, communities, often communities of color that are impacted by environmental pollution, toxins, and other kinds of health um, disparities. And so it's, um, for many communities, been a long-standing problem. And so when we're talking about environmental justice communities today, it ranges from a variety of factors, not just the, say, the sort of uh, companies or businesses that are operating in the area that, that offer out pollutants, but it's also quality of life factors that um, impact the way it is that residents there are living healthy, meaningful lives. Oftentimes those are economically distressed communities as well. They're oftentimes overburdened and underserved. And so when we're talking about how it is that we can actually stop the pollution that is impacting their health in many different ways, we're also talking about how how to economically empower those communities to also be able to change their lives. And that's right, Mike or Jan, is there anything that you would like to add? Um, I'll I'll add to that, that Sylvia gave a great introduction. Um, So building on that, um, in a a broad sense, uh, the the objective is for all communities, regardless of socioeconomic status, uh, to receive uh, equal environmental protection by the laws, the regulation, the enforcement of, of those laws and regulations in the country. And the other thing, um, the other, not really the flip side, but closely connected to that, is that we, the country has a history of uh, bringing 
I would say in some cases, forcing uh, disadvantaged communities to pushing them uh, to live in, 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 in close and in some cases dangerous contact with um, the, uh, the uh, generation of pollution that in some, you know, the, which has, one could argue historically has powered society where the burden of the pollution has been borne by a very small population. The benefits of what those industries have produced are realized by others. So that inequity is a really key aspect of, of um, environmental justice. Absolutely. Yeah, if I could add to that, um, it, what they both mentioned is about fair treatment, and it's also about meaningful participation. And this is kind of the official definition in the United States. In different countries, the term means different things. Um, I would say that's the most common kind of definition. I also like to include fair treatment for the earth. Um, it's not that I don't think that the minority situation shouldn't be the first and foremost part of this, uh, but also somebody needs to speak up for the treatment of the land, the air, the water that is around us. So I like to include that in the definition. And I think the harder part of this is um, two things, maybe fair treatment. Uh, if you said you were treating the majority population poorly and you were also treating the minority population poorly, what would environmental justice be? Um, and if you uh, look at it from uh, the standpoint of uh, people who are a minority population, the other part of that definition is meaningful participation. So how are you going to be identified? How are you going to be heard? How are you going to get the information you need? Uh, I've been in communities where that's a real issue, you know, uh, a community that wants to be a Superfund site um, and can't figure out how to do that, or somebody that's tried to get through the EPA's online system about who I should contact, and the contact isn't a person close to me, or I'm leaving a message and I can't get through to them. So it's what is a meaningful participation? Uh, we've got a wonderful system where we put in place that we should have all the government agencies having some kind of environmental justice um, an indicator and that people should meet and discuss it. But in some cases, that can be just a nice thing that you put on your website and you haven't moved forward to it. So it's a complex thing in deciding on a definition. And I think well, uh, Sylvia and Mike have made the biggest points. Maybe I'm just adding a little something. No, and that's actually, uh, Jen, you sort of walked through some of the points that had resonated with me that we were going to discuss. So you have, you have laid a nice outline for us as well. Um, one of the um, items that resonated with me on the EPA's website is that the goal of environmental justice will be achieved when everyone enjoys the same degree of protection from environmental and health hazards, and that when everyone has equal access to the decision-making process. Um, so the healthy, so they have healthy environments in which they live, learn, and work. Um, and I think that gets to a lot of, obviously that's the umbrella to what each of you have described. And I think um, is easily digestible and understandable as these are the goals towards which we're working. And then within that, then NEJAC's mandates and objectives for how do we, how do we actually achieve those things? Um, and so I kind of want to break down some of those mandates. Um, so the first mandate is to integrate environmental justice considerations in EPA programs, policies, and activities. 
And so I think my first question is, how does that work practically? Is Are there focus areas? Are there, um, obviously there's a number of things that could be tackled under this umbrella. So how do you even decide what to focus on? So I can give a first go if it helps. Um, so as a council, there are about 30 members and we come from different stakeholder groups. As you mentioned earlier, the ones that we're representing here, but there are also uh, non-governmental organizations, tribal and state uh, governments or government. And so what we try to do is to have conversations around issues that come before us. So we, do, we develop our own agendas and so we're also trying to stay current to issues that are happening, but be responsive to what it is that we're hearing in the communities that we also represent. Um, through the EPA, we are um, also issued charges or asked to pro provide feedback in certain issues. And so Mike is working on one right now that he can also share uh, with you about. A uh, recent one that we also did was about water infrastructure a couple of years ago. And uh, we also take a lot of public comments. So every time we meet, we have hours, in fact, of public comment. So we're very responsive to what it is that communities across the country want to report to us or ask for our help on. And then with that, we take into consideration what is it that we've heard um, from different voices and how it is it that we can start identifying the priorities that we believe we need to get some attention on through the EPA and form committees, working groups, draft letters to the administrator, or figure out other kinds of hearings that need to be had. Okay. Are there currently, oh yes, Mike, go ahead, please. Uh, yeah, um, uh, uh, the, um, as uh, Sylvia mentioned, one of, the, one of the charges, which is essentially a direction that we get from the EPA administrator uh, was to um, uh, take a deep dive into the Superfund program, which is the nation's program for cleaning up abandoned hazardous waste sites. These are you know, the sites that are you know, notoriously the most contaminated sites in the country. And um, it is not the least bit surprising that disadvantaged communities are uh, more, more likely to be living in close proximity, to have their water, their land, their air impacted by this contamination. Um, and uh, the, the work that we're doing that's focused on Superfund is to essentially examine what the program needs to do to essentially going back to those core principles of environmental justice to ensure that the cleanup in those communities are as thorough, as performed as expeditiously, and picking up on a critical point that Jan made that, that the work that's done and the work that is left behind when the, the, when the land is cleaned up is fully informed and responsive to the needs of the community. That's such a critical aspect. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, you know, I can't cheat and tell you what's in the report because we haven't released it yet, but that really embodies a, a very significant portion of the recommendations and strategies for how to do a better job of engaging the community fully, incorporating that input and having both the cleanup and then the actions to restore that community, um, uh, you know, not, not be imposed because it's someone else's idea of what that community really needs, but it's informed by what the community tells us is what its priorities are, what and what enhances uh, the quality of life 
um, uh, for, for them having been burdened by living, you know, having a, your neighbor a toxic hazardous waste site. And uh, Kristen, I'm gonna have to excuse myself for just a few minutes, but I will be right back. No worries, thank you, Mike. Um, that feels what Mike just said also feels, um, I'm not sure if it's an important difference or maybe it's growth of these efforts as well that um, they, these solutions or these discussions are feel like they're no longer top down, that they are really generating from the community and coming up um, and I'd like to talk a little bit about that, you know, is, is the shift I sort of am perceiving actually there or was it always sort of more community but the community was having a hard time being heard? I'm just curious as to how does that dynamic work? So the fight for environmental justice really has been a long time struggle. And so it's actually pretty unique that we have a council as we do um, in the EPA or really anywhere in government. <laughs> In federal government especially. And so this has actually been the result of social movement groups. For many years, people who organize in communities and have been trying to bring attention to the issues of environmental pollution, contamination, and the solutions that communities have for how to address these, and really wanted to prioritize their needs and their voices and make sure that they are getting the due process, resources, and representation that they deserve on the issues. And so while um, many of the issues sort of have local origins, they have larger impacts, right? They affect how it is that we really understand what it means to live in safe, healthy communities, to even have enforcement of the laws that we have right now, say like our Safe Drinking Water Act and, and others. And so one of the things that NEJAC has done is try to sort of be a vigilant council that is paying attention to the issues and being responsive as well. And so we really see ourselves as taking orders from EJ communities and being responsive in that way and knowing that we have to do all that we can to also hold uh, elected officials accountable and responsible. So our role within the EPA allows us to sort of maneuver in those ways to be engaged with EPA staff and especially now in the Biden administration to also have the formation of other environmental justice councils taking place across the administration. And so we were delighted to be able to participate in a first conversation just a few weeks ago with the White House Environmental Justice Council leadership that is forming. And so it's giving a lot of hope that there's actually gonna be some real responses to the needs that communities have been raising for many years. Perfect. And Jan, I'm guessing that a large part, and I'm turning to you as the uh, uh, academia representative here, uh, is I suspect a lot of this also requires a fair amount of research and, you know, really helping people understand what are the impacts. Uh, you know, obviously you have sort of the human observable, but, you know, is, is someone studying sort of the long term? Um, how, are, how are we accounting for, since the council has been around for almost 30 years now, um, sort of that history of, of, of buildup or of documentation of these issues as well? You know, a lot of times academics just speak to other academics and they're not involved with policy. Um, I think that uh, it helps for those two sides to get together most frequently. Uh, what's interesting about this movement coming out of the late 60s and then in the 80s is a number of those movements also put out reports. So they weren't necessarily coming from academia. They were coming from community groups who saw something that needed to move forward and sometimes academic 
academics were part of those groups or driving it, but they were included in, but it was really community-based to move things forward. Um, I look back at my own experience in this. Um, I uh, went to NEJAC meetings when I was not a member of NEJAC because we used to have the um, bus tours that were connected with it. And for me, that was the most important thing. I want to see what it is we're talking about. I want to be with the people who are affected by something. And when I came and was selected to be on NEJAC, I found they weren't doing the bus tours anymore. So uh, as an academic who had a long history here, I really pushed for, you know, this is something we really need to institute and put back in place. One of the values of this is particularly how it's done under EPA and in NEJAC is we have, just as you've mentioned, that each of us represent different constituencies. That's a set part of the advisory council. And so you're here talking with people who work with state governments. You're here talking with people who work with the environmental justice groups. Uh, I've found that sometimes people who attend the meetings want to speak, but other people have just come because they want to hear what the different people have said about things. So I think uh, my point in rambling on here is that uh, seeing what people are experiencing is really important. Giving resources to community groups and encouraging researchers and academia to work together with community groups and moving things forward is, is really, really important. Well, and that's as I was, I was having a conversation with um, someone locally about our program today, and they were very curious about NEJAC. That was their first exposure to it. And they said, well, is business involved? Are, you know, because if you don't have buy-in of all of these groups, and if they aren't all working somewhat together, um, then it feels as if progress would not be able to be made. And so it feels as if that partnership you just described, uh, Jan, and I'm sure there are other partnerships out there as well, um, is really critical to, to closing this, this gap, this equity gap and, and advancing the principles of environmental justice. In fact, if you don't mind me trying to show my picture here. Yeah, go right ahead. <laughs> this is a picture of a plant. And this is from Mossville, Louisiana. When that community people moved in there, there were none of these things around it. Now the place looks like this. It doesn't look like those houses that we've talked about. And I remember sitting on a porch, people invited me. This is one of the Nijak tours. And I went there, did the tour, and then I went back and drove out there to spend time with the people. And they invited me to sit on their porch. And I sat in that rocking chair looking at what was across from them. At night, it's beautiful. You have all these colors coming out of these various things and smoke, you know, it's and a lot of lights, you know, it looks like an amusement park across from you. But the question is, it wasn't something they wanted. They didn't like the effects of what was going on. And our job is to not only uh, help people do that, but to hear their voices directly heard about whatever it is that's going on in their communities. Well, and that's, that's a nice segue into the second of the NEJAC mandates and objectives is to improve the environment and public health in the communities that are disproportionately burdened by these environmental harms and risks. And so I think my question there is, um, does this mean, are we more focused on this uh, on the remediation and the improvement? Are we also still looking at how do we stop this or how do we, how do we change the consideration that lawmakers or business have um, before these things go in or before these before these types of of, of areas are established mm -hmm. it's, it's all of it and it all has to happen at the same time but 
one of the things that we have to be more sensitive to is what it is that communities are seeing are their priorities, what's driving their immediate needs. And for some, it is immediate cleanup of some disastrous toxins or spills or anything that's happening at a given time and whether or not there even has to be um, extraordinary measures like evacuations or whatever those things are that have to be addressed in, the, in a short-term sense. But again, like when we're talking about environmental justice communities, the issue of legacy pollutions, legacy communities is one of the more dire aspects of this, right? Where we've got generations of people who are living under the same toxins. And I can tell you, I'm here in Detroit and there are residents who live in particular communities out near the refineries downwind of, the, of where the, um, their houses are. And they can talk about neighbors and family members who have died with cancer, right? Mm -hmm. Over many years, generations. And, and, it, and it's sad to hear that, the things that folks have experienced and how you just come to expect that you and your children will have asthma or you will have some other kinds of respiratory conditions because that's just where you live and you can't afford to move. And redlining has been a reason why you are also there. So we have to especially pay attention to the racial justice aspects of environmental justice. And so part of that means we have to reckon with a lot of things we've done wrong in this country in terms of how it is we've treated people, how we've denied them the opportunity to live full lives and even designated them to communities that were harmful for their own well-being. And so as we're looking at what it is that we need to do to drive those changes, we have to have responsibility accountability and solutions from all sectors of society, right? So it's not just what it is that we're gonna be requiring of our local, state or federal governments, but also what it is we're requiring from everyone who benefits from the communities in which we live. So small business, businesses, corporations, everyone who has some, some way of impacting or influencing the quality of life where people live. And so when we're even talking about how it is that we get rid of the environmental pollutants that we have right now. Some of the things are around changing the way that we operate, whether it's uh, shifting to kind of uh, green aspects of how it is that we derive our energies or whether it is that we um, change the way that we manufacture particular products. And we don't necessarily want to shift these, um, these environmental pollutants to you know, other nations or other states or cities. We don't wanna see that happening either, right? We don't wanna just displace the problem. We wanna actually change it. So it requires a, a real shift in how it is that we're willing to approach the needs and the costs and the responsibilities. Are we also building in, I guess I would call it, um maybe forward-looking analysis as well. We're dealing with a lot of new technologies now. We're dealing with a lot of, of new um, ways of doing things that we don't potentially know what the ramifications or the, the effects will be. Um, and so is it also now greater mindfulness of, yeah, maybe periodically we need to take a step back and review these things more carefully or be more sensitive when people start reporting impacts that that area had not been seeing before or changes um, to people's health or things along that line. Is, it, is that also part of the conversation? Do you wanna jump in, Jan? Otherwise I can. 
It is part of the conversation. Um, but I think uh, people often don't have available to them the information about, for instance, pesticides that are being used. Uh, while I'm a professor at the University of Cincinnati in Ohio, I happen to live in Florida. And I was shocked when I came down here because uh, often people are living in kind of close proximity to each other and they've hired people to spray whatever on their land. And because it's very windy, everything is shared. And I found people didn't even know what was being sprayed, what the effects of it could be. Um, there is a, a place here where we've got water problems, um, algae showing up in a lot of different places. My mother who would come down here and visit, uh, she died this last year at 106 and she was very on top of everything. And, and she groaned every time she visited down here. Why haven't these people stopped doing what they're doing and getting on top of this? She would go to senior conversation groups and they would all sit around and she said, it's just like every year I come down here and it's the same conversation. Why don't they fix this? So I think both people understanding what's going on. Um, and I found uh, what was very effective when I did a workshop, I put up a map of a community and every danger place that we knew in the community was indicated and gave people two little somethings to stick on there where they lived and where they worked. We could hardly get them back in the room to listen to the discussions because people were all of a sudden looking at what was going on somewhere or what had gone on there. And they would ask, what was there? What, why is that street being, you know, I live down on the next street. I didn't know about this. Um, so I think providing people with information is the first thing. I mean, the lesson here about all environmental justice is it's come out of the community groups. So giving the community information, allowing them to share information, uh, to push policymakers to be able to do something about what needs to be done. We are so late in working on these things. Um, you know, if you've got children, you've got to be thinking about this. Well, and that that education, uh, the necessity that you just mentioned too, is I have to imagine one of the the hardest parts of this because if the community, if there are not perhaps readily evident or even en masse reactions or health problems or something, um, a lot of this might sort of fall under the radar. So you may not even be aware that you are in, as you said, a trouble zone or, or something like that. Um, how any thought are you discussing? How do you start educating people so they are aware of this? Is it that just seems very daunting to me at the moment when I'm trying to think of educating you know, a couple hundred million people on here's actually what's going on in your neighborhood that you need to be aware of. Yes. Okay. Do you want to talk a little about uh, education, Mike? Um, I, I actually um, wanted to pick up on what um, Kristen just said. And this is, this is not a solution in all cases, but there is, um, a, uh, in the U.S. and actually to a greater extent in other countries, um, a, um, uh, a actually a very helpful uh, bringing together of, of community concern, uh, technology, sort of combining to create really good and important citizen science. Uh, and um, uh, uh, Part, so, and what I mean by that is this. Uh, one of the things that is, you know, kind of, I think, um, at a core of environmental injustice is when 
a community is exposed to contamination and is unaware of it and is not made aware of it. And that is a persistent, chronic, historic, current, and it's gonna be a future problem, all of the above. However, I think there's actually a very positive however here. And that is that um, uh, through technology, there are uh, accurate, relatively inexpensive um, uh, and uh, easy to use monitoring devices that a community can essentially own and operate and know when the discharge, you know, when, when the, um, the air pollution control has gone down on their neighborhood manufacturing facility and they're breathing really terrible air. It gives them power in two ways. They can act in a way basically to defend themselves and um, uh, they can uh, take the initiative to begin enforcement to, you know, to you know, bring that to the attention of the regulators and force action. So um, I think that, you know, that the, the ability to provide, maybe this is different than the education piece, so forgive me, but it's something I, I think is really important. It's connected no, I, to it. That all sounds part and parcel of the same it, thing. Yeah, so. yeah, it's connected to it. But, you, but giving communities the power to know what's happening in their environment more or less in real time is I think potentially transformational to environmental protection in the United States and everywhere, by the way, but most significantly uh, in environmental justice communities. Well, one thing I wanna add, and, and thank you for that, um, Mike and Jan, is what's key to all this is justice, right? We know that that plant that was built over there 50 years ago has been trouble, right? And we knew that when it came in, the promise of jobs was luring and all the tax credits that go along with it and all of the hope for what it was gonna do for the community, in many ways, they'd never get really fully fulfilled, right? The number of jobs really don't end up getting delivered as promised. The number of pollutants that or the monitoring of that is always higher than they say it will be. And any kind of other benefits to the community in terms of even community benefit agreements, always find a way to not come down in the way that the community needs. And what happens is oftentimes communities are the ones that have to bear the burden of not only reporting, but monitoring and seeking justice or relief for what is happening. There, there's been a failure both in our corporate communities and in our governments in terms of making sure that they are delivering upon the promises of what it means to provide for public health and what it means to also ensure that there are not disproportionate peoples that are being impacted. And that's exactly what's been happening, right? And, and we have, we've allowed it. We've, we've been cognizant of the fact that it's unhealthy. We would not want to live there when we're taking, uh, making the decisions about where we're going to move or raise families. We know where we don't want to live, right? And we know people that are sort of stuck living where they're at, right? And for many residents, you know, those are the family homes that people have had for generations. It was the only home that maybe their, their family was able to afford. But again, like I said, when we look at how it comes to be that those um, environmental injustice communities were established and how it is that they've sustained, we've had a lot of ways in which we have not allowed those companies, governments to be held accountable and how we haven't really directly found ways to address the relief that's been needed. So it's not like it's a big secret that 
communities are saying, you know what, it's not healthy here. We can't keep living like this. It's really impacting us. And we've got all these things that are monitoring, telling us that the numbers are bad and that sometimes we're going to have to. And, and something even when I was growing up, I grew up actually in Los Angeles and we had smog alerts, right? And so it was well known that if the number was over a certain thing, we couldn't go out to play in the playground. We had to stay inside for our breaks and for uh, lunch. And so we've known for years how impactful it is also in children. And, and you can look in any kind of internet search and see playgrounds and schools that are backdropped against some kind of chemical plant or other kinds of unsafe zones. And so we, we know that what the problems are, we just haven't had the result or the resources to address them as needed. And so that really is what it has to be today. And so it really is about a political choice. As much as it's economic, it's also about a political choice. And so that's what I think that we're really seeing, especially in the yes. national reckoning that we had last year, with Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, and other kinds of calls for racial equity and justice, is to say, look, let's really take this closer look at what's happening in our communities and what can we do to address it? And in the case of environmental justice, there's much more we can be doing in terms of what technology offers and what we know better about yes. how to either manufacture things or provide better for our communities. So that's, I think, a lot of what we're hoping this year is gonna provide in terms of some of that promise. And that sounds great. And that actually leads us into the third mandate. So, you know, by to address uh, environmental justice by ensuring meaningful involvement in decision-making and building the capacity for in those disproportionately burdened communities and promoting this collaborative problem solving. And I, Jan alluded to this a little bit in her intro, so I'm gonna start with you first. What does meaningful involvement actually mean in this case? How do we, how do we know, what, what are the parameters for, yes, this is meaningful involvement? And Jan, I'm gonna start with you on that one. Okay, um, that's really important, um, first of all, Voices have to be heard directly, and then who's hearing them? I can remember at one of the early NEJAC meetings, somebody made a very impassioned plea during a, a public comment period about what needed to be done and um, said to the chair, so this is what we need done. And the chair said, I don't think you understand. We're an advisory committee. And the person said, well, who is it that's making the decisions? Why am I talking to you? Get the person out here who's supposed to do this. And one of the things about public comment, you are talking to an advisory committee who's going to give information on but that doesn't mean that that's the uh, direct contact. So I think it's really important, not only to get the forces together and to provide knowledge to people, but to figure out ways to get directly to the people who make decisions. And one of the things I always tell my students, consider running for public office. You know, it's a lot easier to be in the position to make the decisions that need to be done than to have to organize the community to try to get the person or people to move forward on something. Uh, so if you care about something, uh, move not only forward in the community, but move forward on the political front or figure out ways to be able to do that. And, and Mike, I see you nodding your head as well. So I feel as if you have something to add to this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what what I was, I, I really uh, uh, the, the 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 story that Jan uh, told, I think, is just it, it's it's so short and so succinct. Uh, our, one of our one of our uh, jobs as part of NEJAC is to make those decision makers 
uncomfortable if they're not doing the right things. It is true that we don't get to make the final decision, but we can be a voice for communities and um, apply pressure in a way that is public. And um, public officials you know, tend to respond to public pressure if it's strong, unified, uh, you know, with, with a, a clear and obviously just message. Um, so, um, but, you know, we, we don't get to, you know, uh, dictate this, this, this must be corrected. This action must be taken. Um, but we can, we can apply effective, uh, we can apply pressure and apply it effectively um, to, the, to the very best of our ability. And I would say this, and I'm probably jumping the gun, it's, it's really important who's listening. Um, and um, that has changed in a profound way um, 50 days ago. And I was, I was, that is one of my questions is, you know, this administration seems much more focused on environmental justice. Sylvia, you mentioned the White House Environmental Justice um, uh, Council and just even in the last few days, um, uh, John Kerry in Europe and having those conversations. Um, and so since there is seeming to me a, a greater focus at this time and uh, what, what do you hope to do with that momentum? What, what will that enable you to do? It's, it's changed the discourse for one. And it matters because when you have that kind of conviction from the top, it actually carries down to the communities, right? All the way down to the neighborhoods. And so we have a lot of people that are paying attention and trying to figure out, well, what is it really going to mean in terms of some kind of meaningful impacts? So it was, it was a feeling that pretty clearly on that the uh, Biden administration was intending to do something about this. So when we saw back in January that they issued the executive order on climate change that also sought to uh, deliver upon environmental justice concerns, it was, um, a really good indication of how it is that we felt we could also now put additional pressures in even our local governments, right? Or our state governments, because now we were having to find how it is that we could deliver on those. And so one of the things that has mattered is we already see regular engagement taking place with um, EPA and other, uh, other agencies of the administration that are engaging in public comments again. And that's significant just in itself, right? Because they're saying, look, uh, communities across the country, um, tribal lands, we, we want to hear from you. We want you to tell us what are your priorities, what are your needs, um, and what is it that you are expecting of us to do? And so while that is always important, we have to be sure that we're also delivering the resources because it's not just about just reporting, but actually delivering. And so what's been promising too is in that same executive order the president came forward with an initiative called Justice 40, which they would provide 40% of the overall benefits of federal investments back into these disadvantaged communities. And so it actually gave us something measurable to see in terms of what we could at least be counting on that we haven't had over actually many administrations. And so to have it play so front and center with climate justice makes it actually feel as we might actually have an opportunity to make some transformational changes here in these next few years.
Well, I think that's, you know, we talk about even when we set goals for our own organizations that they need to be measurable. You need to know sort of what, what you're advancing towards. And so what you were just describing also seems good, um, just good management progress process in general for, okay, now we have an understanding of what the goalposts are and, and not that, um, I mean to say that there was always the larger understanding of the goalposts, but now there are measurable steps for how do we get, how do we start advancing towards that environmental justice um, umbrella parameter that everybody has that equity. Um, and so that's, that's very encouraging to hear. I'm going to remind our audience to ask questions at uh, any time. And while they are formulating their questions, um, I'm gonna ask you all a few more. So, um, <laughs> One of the things that it looks like uh, Nijak is taking a special interest in or spearheading an effort on is how to bring in youth voices into this conversation as well, with the, um, especially with regard to climate change. And I would love if you could tell us a little bit more about that effort as well. And Sylvia, maybe I'll start with you on that. So um, it's, it's funny because that's actually one of the conversations that we regularly have in EJAC is we've got to get younger members onto the council. And so there isn't necessarily a youth seat, but um, the, I can tell you that we probably have a good, a good if not significant number of people who provide public comments being among younger members of, um, of our nation. And so they are there to deliver upon what the issues are and give us a solution and then say, look, we're gonna be watching, you know, so the accountability piece is also there as well. And so I think what's also exciting is that we've got a lot of folks who have been also doing a lot of climate justice work in their communities and states. And so that's really where it's gonna matter in many ways about how we actually change the ways in which we're operating in our small towns and our cities and, and how it is that we can then take those measures and um, get the federal government to provide the investment that's also needed to help secure those. And so I think we also need to have like a, a level of honesty though in that there's going to be pushback, right? It's not gonna be something I think that all sectors agree on or all communities agree on how those changes should happen. But what has been significant is that the folks that are leading this in many of our younger communities and organizations, they are driven towards believing that this is the only way that they're gonna survive and that our earth is gonna survive. And so they're coming with really, um, not only like um, interesting ideas, but also they wanna be part of that work to make it happen. And so they're assuming leadership positions in many of their communities and driving the change. And so I think that what we've got to do is figure out how it is that we can do this in multi-sector ways, because we're not having enough of those conversations within the industries that um, we're sort of needing to make the kinds of change that need to be happening. And we're not actually changing enough of the policies at the local levels that allow for that. We're seeing a lot more advisory committees pop up around climate justice, environmental justice. And so the spaces are opening for the, that kind of engagement. But I think that we've got to figure out too how it is that we can get even more short-term wins. Because I think people, um, are gonna get frustrated if we, can actually, if we can't actually show that, look, it's possible to do smaller changes soon. And so one of the spaces that I know we're seeing that is how we can even do our water infrastructure differently, right? There's a number of communities that are talking about, well, we can actually change the way that the stormwater runs off and we can collect it in, in other kinds of 
ways so that we're recycling. And so it actually helps with the vibrancy of communities too. And you get people that want to be involved in that kind of process through planting new gardens. And so there's lots of ways that it can even happen at the very local neighborhood levels. No, and that, you know, that sort of momentum and that sort of um, so much of this work actually, and so much of all of the conversations we've been having are this, this work has been in progress. This work will continue to be in progress. And as I think Mike said at the beginning of this, like this will, this will continue to be challenges. So, you know, we don't really know how long this road is, but to get that momentum and have some of those, those smaller or help people understand as well, I can change this one thing right here. And while that may not seem as if that has a global impact, that's part of the stepping stone for how do I get to that larger impact? And I think that that sounds really important. I think that's one of the reasons why our audience tunes into these conversations is trying to figure out and look around their own community with how can they affect change there and what do they need to be looking for? So that sounds, that sounds great. Jan or Mike, anything you wanted to add to that? Well, I, I think I've been sort of depressed the last few years about our progress in a lot of areas on environment. Um, and I think a lot of people who are like me uh, are hopeful um, and maybe have high expectations. Uh, and you've got to realize there's going to be some time to move things along. But one of the things I would look at is we had this um, push to have interagency environmental justice interests. I sure would look at each area to see how that's playing out because I don't think it's been strong enough in some areas. It's not enough for me to see a statement on the website. I want to see how it is that it works in each of these areas. So I'm hoping uh, that that will be one of the things that we move forward on. I'm also very curious about this uh, um, council that will be developed out of the White House on environmental justice and how that's going to work in conjunction with other efforts that have taken place in other places. So I'm hoping that we can pick, as you mentioned, something to work on that you move on quickly. You know, Not that something's a 200 page report and takes a year and a half to be able to develop, but what are we going to be doing? Because we need some short term show we mean business. We've made something different. Um, and some longer ones as well. So setting some priorities and showing that this can work is really important. Uh, Kristen, what I would add to that, yeah, the, you know, the question about the engagement of youth, um, uh, not, not that there isn't uh, uh, room for additional growth, but uh, I, I personally have been, uh, you know, in, I, I would say inspired to act because of the energy of of young people, um, and uh, there are, you know, while there are um, uh, uh, lots of constituents in society that have um, uh, driven uh, the um, the message of the uh, unbelievable urgency to act on climate change, I would say no group has been more effective in communicating that than young people. Uh, and, and that has translated, I'll connect it to something else Jan said, and that is young people being politically really active. They were really active in uh, the last couple of elections. That's, you know, it's, it's truly different and it's, you know, it is measurable. You look at the percentage of people under 35 that are going to the polls, it has really changed. And, uh, 
that makes me very hopeful. Great. All right. Um, we have a question from Helena. Where do you think you'll see the most immediate or the largest benefits as a result of the federal investment in, in this work? May all have different thoughts. So um, Sylvia, I think I'm gonna start with you and see if anything immediately comes to mind. I think again, what we're looking forward first is for the federal investment. So while there's always a need to continue to monitor and report, study, um, do all the kinds of public hearings that need to be had, there have been a lot of studies sort of sitting on the shelf, a lot of local recommendations for what the changes need to be. And so in many ways, we just need to get the resources down to communities so that those changes can be addressed. And for many of them, as, as Mike has also shared, like with the Superfund Task Force, is that these are deep issues, right, that are going to take uh, substantial time and, and cost. And so I think as we're doing this in combination with a number of the other things that are being addressed, um, whether it's... Uh, new types of transportation or new types of housing or other kinds of economic opportunities or changes that they need to be done at the same time that we're looking at whatever these kinds of cleanup efforts are or changes in um, how it is that we're reducing uh, toxins or making sure that we're not contributing to you know, new and emerging problems. And so we see that happening all the time. Um, one of the areas that I work on especially is around water and so the, the large national uh, problem with PFAS contamination in, in almost all of our drinking water sources in one way or another is something that is pretty alarming. And also in Michigan, we've been very focused on the problems of lead. And so it, we've been doing, doing a lot of work at the state and local level to try to address those and get a number of policy and, and bills passed to try to protect our communities. But ultimately, we really do have to have the resolve of the federal government providing the resources so that we can make the changes and address the problems as they've happened. So uh, this is why I'm gonna keep saying that the, the hope of the Biden administration is, is really, I think, what is a, lot, is a lot of what many of us are counting on right now. And so we, we need to see that that actually happens. Uh, Mike or Jan, anything you want to add to that? No, not me. Yeah, a, a couple of comments um, uh, in uh, the two, the two, you know, the, so the question is a great question about, you know, where are the biggest impacts going to be? I might have been most immediate um, to picking on uh, piggybacking on what Sylvia said, um, uh, the investment in clean and safe drinking water and, um, you know, uh, I'll get a little more specific, but we are going to decarbonize our society, and uh, the most you know the the most aggressive investment is in um, uh, conversion to uh, um, all forms of mobility being electrified. So we're 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 not going to be selling uh, gasoline-powered cars in basically a decade, a little more than that. And that's going to make a huge, and, and, and there's a significant investment in that direction that's coming, uh, and that's going to make a huge difference in society. Okay. Good. All right. Before we get to the lightning round of questions, I think I have a question. I feel like we've touched on this a few places, but I want to ask this explicitly as well. Where or to what issues 
do you wish people were paying more attention? Mm. Are there are there things that we we the general public don't seem at all focused on or at all worried about that that you as experts or and you as as people who are really in this world think, gosh, if you only knew or would only educate yourself on this, what would those what would those areas be or what would those topics be that you wish we were paying more attention to? Um, I, I have a, a, a comment that I think is, is relevant enough. <laughs> uh, and that is, and specifically thinking in the context of NEJAC and EPA, um, uh, and, 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 I'll, and I'll even tie it back to the Superfund program, but it really uh, applies to multiple EPA programs. Um, uh, there are many, I mean, it, as an agency, EPA has this wonderful mission to protect human health and the environment. And it has done an enormous amount of good over the 50 years that it's been in existence. And um, in Superfund and in other programs as well, it has been um, uh, focused on preventing uh, further and future harm. Uh, what it hasn't done, and this would be sort of transformational, is focused on and not only protecting you from future dangers, but restoring health to those communities that have been historically harmed. And um, to the extent that, um, that the agency is gonna essentially expand its aperture of what its mission is, it's not only protection, it's gonna be, um, uh, what, what do we, for the, for, uh, for the United, and, and, and as Jan will remind me, it's not just about the people, it's about the land. And I wanna say, I, I totally get that and totally agree with that. But that notion of not only preventing exposure to pollution, but uh, bringing resources to communities to help them um, uh, elevate their level of health and well being is sort of like the next level that we'd like to see this EPA get to. In an area that I've been working in for gosh, two decades now is um, on water affordability. And so um, we've had many problems um, in the state of Michigan, particularly in Detroit, Flint, and many of the former emergency manager cities here that were taken over um, with people who are unable to afford to pay their water bills. And so we've seen families that have been infected for not just like weeks, months, but years living without water and adequate sanitation. And so we were able to have a, a big impact in the governor's decision last year to uh, require all water operators to restore water service to anyone who had been disconnected for the sake of protecting public health so that people could properly wash their hands with soap and water at home to prevent the uh, reduce the expansion of the pandemic. And so we um, are very much paying attention to again how it is that we have to continue to talk about the importance of not just water for life how you know our bodies are basically made up of mostly water but how it is that we have to find ways to uh, deal with the huge infrastructure problems that we have across the country. Like for instance, we have nearly 6 million lead service lines across the country and they are all in the ground and beyond their expiration dates. We've got to find a way to either remove them or get them uh, repaired or replaced and they're at huge cost. And so what typically happens is that those costs for those uh, bonds or other kinds of loans are rolled over onto the water bills of customers so it's an unsustainable practice because people who are already unable to afford their bills can't bear the additional costs. 
So we really have to look at what this means for how it is that we can maintain um, the, not only just like the dignity, but the public health that we all require um, for making sure that we can live safely. But this also impacts communities, not just in urban and suburban communities, but also in rural communities where a lot of residents are also having to provide for their own wells or septic tank replacements and repairs. And those are enormous uh, household costs as well. We've got to be able to figure out how it is that we can address these problems uh, nationwide so that we can all have the safe drinking water and sanitation we need. Okay. I was going to add one something. Um, I think the one lesson of the pandemic has been that people actually have now started to look at what goes on in other countries more than they may have before. And I think when we talk about this, we can't talk about just a solution in the US. I think what Mike said is rather optimistic about the carbon stuff in 10 years. Uh, you know, we've got a substantial population here in poverty and I don't know anybody that can afford an electric car at this point, but okay. Um, and we haven't put the charging stations in place. There would have to be a huge in, uh, investment in infrastructure to move this as forward. Uh, but the point of all this is we need to look at, we're the third largest country. Um, the China and India are ahead of us um, and all those countries in terms of size that are behind us, they need to have the resources. Just as we've seen in the pandemic, some of these places aren't going to get vaccine forever. Uh, even if we make changes here, we have to figure out ways to be able to move the world along, not just here. And we need to look at as the water rises. I, I was in the Philippines and I really hadn't thought about it much, but living on an island with the rise of water, you wanna talk about migration between the Mexico and US? Let's talk migration. Uh, if we let that water rise, there are gonna be a lot of people that need to be re relocated from where they are. So it's not, and we need to be an example here, but we also need to do that outreach effort to help people with different circumstances than we have also be able to move along. And we need to do that cooperatively with other countries. No, I appreciate you pointing that out, Jan. I think that uh, I agree with you that I think if, if the pandemic has taught us anything is that we cannot afford to um, only be within our boundaries or only within our silos. That cannot be the only place that we're focused on, on the people and the change that is necessary because that leaves out a lot of the people and the things that will affect us. So yes, all right, lightning round questions. First question. What progress do you hope to see in the next year? And Sylvia, I'm gonna start with you. I am hoping that we will be able to get national legislation on affordable water and sanitation. Okay, Jan? I don't know, I really don't know. Um, I think uh, we've been having discussions about our meetings and I would like more people to attend the environmental justice meetings. They're, this one is going to be online, give public comment. Let us know what you want. Let the people who are making those decisions hear you. Let us help you make those voices heard. Uh, but I'm not sure which ones are going to be first. There are so many problems, uh, sort of overwhelming. Okay, Mike? Um, I, in the next year, I expect to see progress um, in um, a, a, a much higher level of alignment and collaboration across federal agencies dealing with um, protection of human health and the land. And that, that's going to make a big difference. 
in, in, in sort of a, 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 a very um, kind of granular level, um, uh, what I expect to see in the next year are communities applying for grants to whether it's clean up a brownfield site or conduct some other act, get support for, for conducting some other activity that protects the environment and elevates the well-being of the community, for those to be simplified, for them to be more accessible, and for them to essentially be coordinated across agencies that are working on similar issues in slightly different ways. I do think that'll happen in by March of 2022. How about that? <laughs> That's a very ambitious goal. I like it. Okay. Yeah. Um, what gives you hope that progress will be made? I'm going to go in reverse order this time. So Mike, I'm going to start with you on this one. Um, uh, I, I, this is um, both simple and complex. The, the, um, the, the commitments from uh, uh, the, the, both the uh, current administration from the leaders that have been either put in place or have been nominated to be put in place um, uh, and combined with the whatever, the meeting of the moment. I mean, you know, there, this, is, this is something that the political leadership and um, uh, uh, the, the citizens of the United States seem to me to be strongly aligned upon and, um, you know, uh, we're, we're not stopping. I would, I would say, excuse me, I would say that um, things like the passage of the COVID relief bill give me optimism that we're gonna, we're not only gonna do that, we're gonna do other stuff. Okay. All right, Jan, I'm gonna ask you a slightly different question given your answer to the original question. Do you have hope that progress will be made? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I don't have a lot of hope. I, I really would like to have a lot, and I'm a mediator. Mediators are always optimistic. And uh, I just think this is so overwhelming. I work uh, not only in Ohio at a university, I work in South Africa. Um, and so I go and I work in a lot of other countries because I'm a UN representative for the International Sociological Association. So each time I'm visiting somewhere, you know, if I had a shred of hope when I started, um, I just realized that people don't have enough information. And one of the things I found that's interesting in this country is when you talk with elementary and junior high school people about having a focus on something like this, it's not that they don't care, but they feel like everybody's asking. The focus should be on science. The focus should be on math. The focus should be on English. And they are overwhelmed. Um, and they're often teaching to test, you know, so making that uh, kind of leap to have this as a kind of focus. And I find young people are interested, uh, but interest um, sometimes as you move toward your career gets lost. Uh, and uh, I think we've got to find a way to have a sustained interest about this. This is not a a long-term situation. This is on your doorstep today and in many communities it was yesterday. Uh, so uh, my hope is that the political establishment will not see this just as a, uh, let's put a, a picture up about the environment or environmental justice, but really figuring out in the area they work, what needs to be done and making it a high priority. Okay, and Sylvia, what gives you hope? I think it's seen so many environmental justice groups that have really developed their skills and their knowledge base. And so if you look at, basically I think you can look in any state, if you look up 
uh, at least a state-based organization and many places have local groups, there is enormous skills and potential there for the kinds of leadership that we need. And also a lot of young people, right? When we're talking about where do we find folks that are doing the work. And so when you're having to do work, it's essentially a fight for your life or your family's life. You have to figure out what are those solutions. And so these are folks that know everything from the technical aspects of what the pollutants are uh, to what it is that they do in terms of the, the health. And, but also they're offering up the kinds of policies and solutions that can drive the, the conversations, right? And so they're very engaged. And so I think if anything, if, if you haven't been participating or aware of those kinds of spaces before, look them up because they are typically open meeting spaces where they invite people from the community to come in and listen and learn. And you'll see that there's a considerable amount of like really deep engagement and a wealth of knowledge. That's great. Okay, I'm going to ask each one of you to name another organization or another, I don't know if it's an agency or even a person, who else is doing good work to make progress on environmental justice issues? Jan, I'm gonna start with you on that one. Filmmakers, uh, Dark Waters is a popular film, Mossville if you haven't seen it, but I really appreciate that the funding sources that are putting some money, the community groups that are supporting this and the people who are taking action. There are so many people doing good work in their local communities, but I think the more we can bring something like that to a general audience is really helpful. Okay, great. Mike? Um, uh there are there are there are uh, so many organizations. I'm going to kind of connect a couple of things that are doing good work. And I was if I if I was given a um, you know kind of a broad class, I, I would say it is um, local non-governmental organizations. There are so many of them. I think about the Washington D.C. area. I I, I I I'll I'll make a pitch. I know you know I. I, I Probably not fair, but the you know the Anacostia Watershed Society is a group that I've been engaged in in the Washington D.C. area for a long time. They do they're doing tremendous work in the watershed, both in cleaning up the Anacostia and elevating the communities. And I know that there are, you know, at least hundreds, if not thousands, of organizations doing that level of work. And uh, uh, let's connect that back to what Sylvia said you can find great organizations where you live doing important things to improve the environment and the quality of life in your community. And uh, if, you, if you can find the, you know, find the opportunity to get involved in those organizations, it's not only tangible, it's really rewarding. Perfect, Sylvia. I would have to say it's kind of this whole collection of what we're calling water warriors. And they're mm -hmm. women from First Nations down to women who work in communities where they've been impacted by water insecurity and are trying to promote uh, what we need to do better to ensure that we have safe drinking water that's also accessible and affordable. You will find that these um, women are holding up a lot of the mm -hmm. sort of water policy and water education work that's taking place in, in many places around the country. And there are also a lot of ones that are on the front lines of protest and also actions to stop uh, negative <laughs> actions that are taking place or to enforce the protection of drinking water sources. And so I think if you even look up just water warriors it, in any given place, you'll see different names that sort of got attached to some of our leaders nationally, but particularly in our uh, First Nation communities. 
Perfect. Okay. Yep. All right. And the can, final I, can, I, can I add one? Can I add yes, one? Go ahead, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to, um, uh, and, um, uh, they, they've been around for a long time. They're everywhere. There are state chapters. I, I happen to really like the League of Conservation Voters. Okay. All right. Perfect. All right. Last lightning round question. For our audience, what should, be what should we be reading? Who mm. should we be listening to? What podcast should we be tuning into to educate ourselves more, I don't know, to be really scared, to want to do work. Um, you know, what, what are you listening to? What are you recommending? What's, what is exciting you uh, in, in the reading, thinking, podcasting space about this right now? Jan, I'm going to start with you, I think. Okay. It's got to be Robert Bullard. Um, Robert has been with us from the beginning. Uh, he writes in very clear uh, language. Um, anybody should be able to pick up a book. For those of you who are a little turned off by books. There are a million YouTube presentations. So go just put the name in Bullard and you'll be able to find him. Um, I remember one lecture he was given, they put up behind him all the books that he had written and he was pointing to them and talking about them. And then he goes, oh, they're actually all the same thing. Um, and they aren't, but the, but the theme is there and his work is really good. So the other thing I would recommend is um, the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council can be found through the EPA website. We have these meetings, you can access them, please attend, please take part in the public comment. Uh, please submit written comments because this next time apparently several people wanted it to be much shorter for public comment than I think it should be. Uh, but we do accept written statements and this is something that moves things forward. Please take part. Absolutely. And we have posted um, the, both NEJAC and the EPA website in our, in our comments as well. So they are readily Thank accessible you. to our audience. Um, Mike. Um, yeah, I I've, I've was thinking about uh, trying to do a quick, you know, run through my mental files of things that I have looked at recently that I thought were really unusually good. Um, one of them, it's an issue um, that um, I don't think we've talked about it, it, at length here, and it is connected to environmental justice. And it's the issue of when, you, whether, when you're in, engaged in something that is actively um, uh, uh, kind of elevating a community, there are some downside risks to long-term residents through gentrification. Mm -hmm. um, I'm gonna go back to the Anacostia River because I happens to be what I know. Um, uh, there is a group called Building Bridges Across the River, um, uh, connected to what's a future, what's called 11th Street Bridge Park. Uh, they developed an equitable development plan that I think is extraordinary. And it's something that's been, an, and it describes a, um, a multi-year effort to ensure that long-term residents realize the full benefit and the opportunities to stay where they are if they if that's their choice as as housing as improvements are made more amenities come in and housing values rise so people are not displaced um, so the equitable development plan for the 11th street bridge park i think is the best work in that area that's been done in the country okay. uh, the other thing i would recommend and this connects um, uh, essentially public housing and environmental justice and exposure to contamination. Um, there's a great study that was done by the Shriver Center on Law and Poverty. Uh, 
-hmm. called Poisonous Homes. I think they, I just was really impressed by the quality of work that they did there. And it was um, both in the description of the problem and the solutions. Perfect. All right, Sylvia. So there's a couple of things. In fact, I'll put a link here. Um, for anyone who's not familiar, over at the EPA, there's this uh, amazing senior policy analyst um, and researcher. His name is Charles Lee. And he's written, um, he's, he's doing um, a lot of writings these days, but he's got a piece from last year that's called Charting a Path Forward for Environmental Justice. And he's actually someone who's been very significant in the movement for environmental justice over the years and um, is someone who was well sought out and also does a lot of convenings with other uh, social movement groups, but also universities. And so over at the University of Michigan School for uh, Environmental Science, uh, there's um, a regular symposium that takes place over there. And so on the university's website, you can see a number of the speakers from different symposiums that are very much worth the, the view. And in fact, they break them out so they're kind of a, not too long where you can maybe watch for 15, 20 minutes. So I would say if you went to the University of Michigan website and then also read uh, this piece by Charles, I think it would give you a, a good overview of some of the issues that are taking place these days. Perfect. And then, so you and I, when we were starting this, you also mentioned that um, NEJAC is accepting nominations. Um, so I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about that as well. Absolutely, thank you. And so um, I, I shared a link to, I'm not sure if, if folks have seen it there, but the NEJAC is broken up into also the regions. So we represent from a stakeholder group, but also from a region. And so if you go to the EPA's website for NEJAC, you'll see a map of the regions, and then you'll also see a link for the application to apply to be a member of NEJAC. And so we're looking for representatives from some of the regions. We've got enough in some, but not enough in others. And so uh, usually the terms are about three years, and oftentimes um, they're also uh, extended for another three years. So it's a really engaging space for anyone who really is trying to bring forward the issues and the understandings that they have for the work that they do in environmental justice, I think you'll find it really rewarding. Wonderful, thank you. And we did post that link um, uh, in the Facebook chat as well. So um, thank you for highlighting that. Um, I want to say to our audience, thank you for joining us for tea today. And Jan, Sylvia, and Mike, thank you again so much for being oh, with us and pleasure. challenging thank us you. and giving us these this information. Um, we know these conversations never really end. So um, look forward to, to talking more and doing the work. And thank you all so much. Yeah, thank please you. stay in touch. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You have been listening to Liberty Under Law the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, presented in collaboration with Chautauqua Institution. Our program's associate producer is Nicole Gustafson. Bryson Barnes is our producer and composer. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. Content for this program was drawn from Tea Time with the Jackson Center, a Facebook live event produced by the Jackson Center. The mission of the Robert H. Jackson Center is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail, 
As a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of future or previous guests through our website. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe. Thank you. CHQ Assembly is made possible through the collaboration and innovation of Chautauqua Institution's full-time and part-time staff, seasonal staff, and many volunteers, as well as participants like you, whose engagement, gifts, and subscriptions sustain our mission.